Um, this is Rosa and I'm Shannon we are the brown girls at the book party welcome back like for reals though welcome back it's been so long it's been so long how have you been doing I hope everybody has been getting through this holiday season um, I'm going to interrupt this introduction to crack this beer the best part of every holiday season is a celebration. I Oh, God, this sounds like this isn't an ad. We're not sponsoring Sierra Nevada. So Sierra Nevada is not sponsoring us. But salute to that. Salute. Additionally, um, we're coming to you from Northern California, which is, um, I guess that's not why we're drinking Sierra Nevada, but I'm going to use it as a seg. <laughs> nice. Um, we're here. In Sacramento, um, the the beautiful city, the capital of California, where it is currently forty one degrees. It's been um, cold as hell, y'all. It's been it's been chilly. Uh, so we're gonna today we're going to talk to you about, as promised, Yoke, um, the book written by Mary H K Choi, and Rosa's gonna tell you a little bit about that. Um, but we want to get this episode started. Um, with a trigger warning and actually there, you know, we thought about doing our own trigger warning, but there is no better than, um, the words written by the author herself. Um, they're really, really good in this book. So it's so beautiful. So here it is. Um, this is a work of fiction that mirrors aspects of my own history with disordered eating, dysmorphia and bulimia. For those struggling with body image and food, this story might be emotionally expensive for you. Please be gentle with yourselves. Sensitivity is a superpower. And please know that there is no such thing as a bad body. Truly. Take up space. It is your birthright. Love, Mary. Emotionally expensive is my new favorite word coupling. Yeah, same. I like we um, just prior to recording, we're sitting here planning out the show and we both sort of um, sighed and like our, our bodies became lighter um, in terms of stress light. Like <laughs> I feel like we released tension yeah. um, at the word coupling. I really, yes. really love it. I really love it. It's lovely. And it is also refreshing to have such a, um, like a warming and inviting and poetic trigger warning. She yeah. just does it in yeah. this like really welcoming way. Because as you will soon learn, if you've already read the book and you are reading along with us and you're here to join us, we're excited about that. That gives me goosebumps. That's the whole point. We hope there's more and more and more of you every month. But if you are also here because we invited you to come, even if you hadn't read the book, we're super stoked to have you here too. And soon, as I recap this book, you'll learn that it is incredibly emotionally expensive. It, it is such a good way to describe this book. Um, 
So let me talk about it. Uh, Mary H.K. Choi, born. I'm going to talk about her first a little bit. Yeah, get it. She was born in Seoul in South Korea. And and then her family immigrated to Hong Kong before her first birthday. Okay. And then to the suburbs of San Antonio, Texas, before turning 14. This amazing woman was born jet setting. Yeah. She's like lived a, a whole ass like adult life yes. before she is like an actual adult. Amazing. Um, and then she went on to attend the University of Texas in Austin. So her, um, you know, American experience was obviously very Texas. And, and that comes up in the book. So we talked about this a little bit in the first episode. And, and she, um, Mary touches on it in the trigger warning that she gives. But this is not a memoir, but there are aspects of the book that are very much pulled from her personal life in terms of the eating disorders. Um, and also, you know, where she grew up and aspects with her family and, um, with her sister getting sick. Um, in real life, I know that a family member close to her and I think it was her mother was diagnosed with cancer. And in the book, it is her sister. Um, so she oh I also want to take an opportunity to say that in the first episode I said that she currently works Mary H.K. Choi currently works in fashion that is untrue so but also I do want to say that I um I think that the mistake makes sense because if you look at photographs of her which is what we were doing um as we were trying to uh, learn a little bit more about her. She is um, sleek as fuck. Yeah, she is like perfection embodied, just like she's a gorgeous human being. She yes. has just like like all of her photographs. She just looks it's she is like butter. She's like butter. And it, she does. She has had experiences uh, in journalistic fashion. So she has had hands in writing, um, for, excuse me. Welcome to the show where we drink beer, burp, and talk about real life. Brown girl burp, burp party. Damn, that was going to be funny. And I really messed up. Almost burped again. <laughs> Anyways. Um, so she, she has written, uh, she's written a lot for fashion and I'm sure she sort of still does that. So that's where my, my misunderstanding came from. Um, so yeah, to the book, essentially this book is about a pair of sisters. Um, we learn very, very quickly. Firstly, that they're estranged. Essentially, they've always had a very tough relationship. Um, but now in their early mid twenties, they are really haven't seen or spoken to each other in a couple of years. I feel like, yeah, I can't exactly remember, um, the timeline there, but it has, yeah, it's, it's, it's been at least a couple of years. Yeah. And June, um, who is not the sister that the book follows precisely, but you know, is obviously one of the main characters um, she moves to New York and then Jane moves there from their hometown in Texas shortly thereafter. 
and they don't even really reunite when that happens. Right. They live like very, very separate, very different lives on completely like their trajectories are. They they would not collide if not for sort of this like the central theme in this story, which is the illness. Yes. And so we learn very quickly, not only that they're estranged, but also that June is very sick um, and she has cancer. And the way in which they come together, which we'll talk about that later, seems happenstance. But we learn quickly that it is quite intentional and that June needs something from Jane, which is um, to pretend like she is her, which she's already doing. June is pretending to be Jane so that she can access her health insurance um, because she's just been let go from her job and she does not have health insurance, but she does have cancer. And that is a shitty predicament to be in for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, and there's so that is like the elevator pitch of the book, right? Like that, that's how we're trying to hook you to keep listening to this episode for the next 40 minutes. Um, but there, there's some major themes um, of the book that really help um, fill out the narrative. Um, you know, of course, eating disorders, we learn very quickly that um, that's also a major theme in the book. Um, the estranged sisterhood between June and Jane and just their very um, their their very unique identities um, and the family secrecy and family relationships that have have um, sort of caused that estrangement. Um, we learn over the course of the book sort of where some of that comes from. Um Obviously, a major theme of the book is the American healthcare system and how it's yeah. tied to employment. Um, so there, I think there is like a there's a social justice lens a little bit, absolutely, um, and an, an an equity lens um, that maybe um, is was not necessarily that like the idea was not necessarily to change our. Um, our outlook on the American healthcare system, but it is something that, that does happen as a result of the story. Um, and then of course there's immigration, um, and what American culture, um, does to, um, immigrant families. Yes. Um, so there's, there are some really big, themes this is not like talk about emotionally expensive yeah right like mary hk Choi packed this book full of full of like really intense themes and it's it is a ya book it's a young adult book it's meant i mean technically meant for you know older teenagers um but also we all love ya 35 still still a big fan um, I will say that I read this book, okay, while I was also listening to I'm Glad My Mom Died by Jeanette McCurdy. Y'all. 
the double eating disorder media that was consuming my life for two (laughs) weeks was so intense. I do not recommend doing that, especially if, like me, you have a history with eating disorders because I was, like, fully entrenched um, and just, like, catapulted back to being 17. And, you know, a thing that that both of those books, Jeanette McCurdy's book, which is a memoir, and this book reminded me that is so important about eating disorders. And I don't I don't think that I could have so clearly seen it had I not read, been reading them at both at the same time and also have outgrown my own bulim- issues with bulimia, um, you know, for 15 or so years. But the constant feeling of failure at the base of everything, always. Um, and that's something really that that um, happens in this book with that we see Jane constantly going through. No matter what, no matter how much she's purged, no matter how little she's eaten, no matter how many days or whatever she's gone without um, overstuffing herself or consuming carbs or whatever it is, like she is constantly feeling like it's not enough. She is constantly feeling like a failure. Um, and it's heart-wrenching how many um, young girls, excuse me, and people in general, but especially women and young girls go through that. Yeah, I think that like anyone who has um, lived with any degree of disordered eating um, is going to find um, I guess I don't know the is going to be like seen. Oh yeah. Felt, to like felt seen and felt heard in these pages and like and I think that the for sure like the commentary on what this culture does to women particularly young women and like this constant need to be and to perform yeah. in a certain way is it just like seeps from these pages in a way that is both like painful and therapeutic yes yes I think Jane's character especially and this is you know something we were just talking about and preparing for this episode um the the thing about her is how much she is longing for acceptance and longing to be seen in this way that she feels should be expected of her. Um, and that comes through in her pursuit, her romantic and sexual pursuits, her friendships, her the like all right. of the friend all of the friend quote unquote friendships that she's made since she's been in New York and even the ones that she had in high school. Um, and how much all of those are also so reflective of exactly like why her eating disorder exists. Um, and how true that feels for all of us, even those of us that don't necessarily identify with with Jane in the other ways, just as women like growing up with with that um, that intense pressure all the time for perfection. Um, it's heavy. Yeah. And I think I mean, I really I want to get into our discussion around the book, but I do think that when when we're talking about um this book in particular being able to highlight the story of um 
obviously, you know, we're brown girl book parties. So non-white women who are living up to the standard that has been largely created and upheld by white women um, is like there is so much there. There is um, just like the layers of like generational trauma that exist. Um, And I mean like generations of women, right? Who have like experienced this sort of um, those moments where you look at your reflection and you're like, I'm never going to be the person that I should be. I'm never going to look like the person that everyone says that I should look like. And so I'm going to do these things that like actively harm my person in order to live up to those standards. Like I just, I don't know. I think any, any book, any author who is willing to write in this way so beautifully about something that is so traumatic and real, Mm -hmm. Um, for a young audience deserves like a giant hug and a big old beer. It'd be really cool to drink a beer with Mary H.K. Choi. Say that. Guys, she responded to us on Instagram and not to brag, whatever. Humble brag. Um, <laughs> but we felt pretty cool about it. And uh, we're just like shitting our pants with excitement. Yeah. <laughs> We're like, we've only done one episode and it's only half an hour, but the author of the book is like sharing our shit. We felt really cool. Um, Okay. So, so we're obviously we've talked a lot about the eating disorders. I think we should kind of try to move through a little bit of the story. So yeah, it opens with our main character, Jane, um, eating at a restaurant with this guy, Jeremy, Jeremy, who is obviously a love interest to her. And the, and the first introduction, well, love, I use that word loosely. Um, he's a romantic he interesting to, to her, her. <laughs> right um and it's messy like the first scene is already messy she's going to this restaurant to meet this guy who we find out soon is like living with her and obviously using her and she th- she thinks maybe it's a date which they've been like doing on and off kind of and like having sex on and off sort of um but he's with an- another girl there at the restaurant. And so we already get this view into who Jane is and we can see that it's a mess. Yeah. And, and I think from the beginning, the first chapter, the, the feeling that comes up for me is like, protect this woman. Oh yeah, totally. Because you're just like, Oh my gosh, you Like, I just look at her and I think a combination of, like, you are so worthy and it does get better. And Jeremy's a fucking piece of shit. Yes. And you just want to, like, swoop her up. Mm -hmm. I think the thing, I mean, if you, if we had, neither of us have said it yet, but we both loved, loved this book. Oh yeah, um, for, for sure. so many different reasons. Obviously, the topics spoke to us personally. Um, she handled these really um, fragile topics 
so beautifully and with like the right amount of grit and and balance um but she really writes so well and something she wrote extremely well was Jane's loneliness like you feel you feel that aloneness of her being in that restaurant with this person this man whose attention she is vying for who obviously doesn't give a fuck and this like other girl that right away the language is already talking about Jane comparing herself to this woman and their physical differences and the way that she's so much more like girly and all these things, these ways she feels like she's failing, you know, which is a big theme, this constant failure that she feels. You can also just feel the tangible loneliness of who Jane is. Oh yeah. And I think it is, um, there's something about the way that Mary H.K. Choi writes that um those that feeling like physically transferred into my body as I was reading this book and and I think you know part of it is because she's because poetry um because the words are so alive and intentional uh, but also I think because of you know identity and like our intersecting identities like I I laid on my bed a lot with my airpods in list I listened to the book I didn't read it I mean I read it listening to books is still reading um I didn't hold a book in my hands she didn't but, consume it with her eyeballs yeah it, my ears consumed the book um I I felt like in these moments just like my heart sinking mm. And like I, there was just such a physical reaction. Yeah, it was to intense. the story. There was a lot of parts like that for sure. Um, <clears throat> so okay, so she's at this restaurant and she's in this shitty situation. She goes to the bar to get a drink, and who should she see? But her sister, who she has not spoken to in years. She's like, hey, girl. and Jane's like what Um, and so we find out late you know it seems like this like accidental run in whatever we find out later that they've been sharing their locations with each other since they were uh, teen sisters in Texas and um, and we learn quickly that June has cancer um, and also that um Oh, I guess we don't learn that right away. So we learn very, very soon that that June is really sick. Yeah. um, We learn that she's sick in a and I think in a way that is um, really telling to her character. Um, You know, we when we were planning for the pod, we talked about June being a messy weirdo who is purely herself and Jane's identity being centered around acceptance, which, you know, it it leads to her living with this eating disorder. And when June discloses that she's ill, it's very like, like I've got cancer. Like Mm -hmm. there's no sort of, um, yeah, there's no care. She doesn't deliver it with a ton of care. Um, she's very blunt like as a person just like direct in every way 
I actually wrote in my notes that, um, let me see if I can find it exactly. June is for sure a Capricorn who hates being wrong. Um, who does not realize that her extremely direct communication comes off as kind of cold and unkind and bossy um, and feels isolated because she is intense in a way that few people can understand or relate to. And I understand that. I felt very seen by the writing of that character. So sure. this was a this was a thing while we were reading this book. We, we read it together-ish, right? Like, I definitely spoiled very early on. <laughs> we were like, ta- I don't even remember what we were talking about. And I was, and Rosa was like, you know, we just have to understand, like, you know, we're reading this book together and there's probably just going to be spoilers. And I was like, yeah, like the cancer. And she was like, the cancer? Question like, mark, exclamation point, question mark, question mark. Because she was on page like eight and I was on page like 21 or some shit. Yeah. Um. But one of the things like during the recording of the recording during the reading of this book, this these like text messages that were going back and forth and back and forth about the, you know, the different scenes. But I think the one that resulted in the most like rapid fire texting was like (laughs) Capricorn. Like, can we just agree that June is a Capricorn? And I was like, bitch, I don't know what that means. Yeah. Because I 100% I am like not someone who understands what any of that shit is. I'm obsessed. Which is sick. Like that you can say that. And I can be like, well, when people tell me that I'm like very much an Aquarius, what does that mean? And then Rosa can be like, well, this is what it means. And I'm like, you know, I used to be like, okay, speaking of speaking of like how we want to be perceived and how women's worth is defined or whatever. I was like very embarrassed about being into astrology for a long time because you know men especially straight cisgendered white men love to be like astrology is not science you know and I always wanted to be wanted and desired so I'd be like no I know it's just like fun but you know what it's fucking real okay tell them that's what the fuck I'm here to say (laughs) all of you white men listening (laughs) to brown girl book party Say it to my face that astrology is not science. Come for us. This is really circling back to my original. That Capricorns have a way of communicating. Well, and also that, um, you know, that the earth is flat. Oh, right. Just so that's thinking right. About all right, 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 right. My, my pseudoscience um, right. uh, persona. We've already established right. your background. So I want to feel like we're going to end up on all of these tangents and we're going to, yes. it's going to be like 55 know, minutes into the show and we're only on chapter three, but so, okay, so June, you know, delivers this message to her sister Jane that she is um, very sick. She has cancer. Um, one of the things that I do want to talk about that I didn't include in the discussion notes um, that was huge for me, like right after the disclosure of the cancer is um so Jane is Jane and her relationship with her therapist. Oh yeah. Um, so that happens. The disclosure of the cancer happens at the end of chapter three. And we learn about, um, Jane and her therapist, Gina Lombardi in chapter eight. And I feel like I can't, I can't go on to have any more conversation around this book without talking about how, 
obsessed I was, I am with um, that whole introduction. Like one that Jane is even in therapy is incredible. Um, but when she talks on page 43 about um, Gina getting her best material and <laughs> then how she wanted to like end her relationship with her therapist, Gina Lombardi, um, because she realized when she found out that she didn't know who Rihanna was, but then she realized that <laughs> Gina not knowing who Rihanna was means that she's a nihilist and therefore she should keep Gina yeah. as her therapist. Like these things about Jane that I just like, I really love her so yeah. much. And her, there is something for me about her relationship with her therapist that I like, I would like Mary HK Troy to write a book just about Jane and Gina Lombardi and yeah. like, or just Gina Lombardi that could be the spin-off or book. just Gina Lombardi. Yeah. Like I want to know about a bitch who doesn't know who Rihanna is in 2022. Okay. okay? Like please <laughs> Gina, you got um, your whole ass PhD and you don't know who Rihanna is. Gina Lombardi. I have read that section over and over and over again because I love the way that she talks about her therapist. I love her relationship with her therapist. I love everything about it. Um, and we do not have to talk more about that. I just feel like we can't. I just had to bring up. Well, Gina. I think it is a testament also again to Mary's ability to write these characters, the complexities of them making them whole entire people. And that is true, not just in this novel, but I've read both of her other books, Emergency Contact um, and Permanent Record. And it is something that she does well. It Her characters are believable. They become your friends. And I think, um, or your enemies, or people you fucking hate, or just real enough to feel attachment and emotion for and about them. And I think that that's incredible. Yeah, and I think, you know, to that end, um, we, so uh, Jane and June are brought back together from this lengthy estrangement because June needs healthcare and Jane needs housing. Um, and that sort of forces Jane, who has lived in this space of, like, needing acceptance all of the time to grapple with mortality. Um, and in chapter 11 on the first page, Jane really has this sort of like honest reflection around um, mortality and what it could be like to lose someone. And she talks about like how someone, how, you know, there's a person who is just like who is there and full of love and full of stories and full of knowing about you. And all of a sudden in the next moment, they may not be there. And this is her sort of unpacking the reality of her sister living with cancer um, and not. And we never know when you hear cancer, we never know how that's going to end. And, you know, for me, having just earlier this year lost a very, very, very close family member to cancer, reading her grappling with what that could look like 
was like, it was another moment where I felt like very seen, Mm -hmm. but also where I felt like I, um, I understood her a little bit more Mm -hmm. and, and I really love the honesty about, um, on page 67, she says, it's also so weird that any news of death makes you almost immediately think of yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's true. Um, because, you know, she follows that up by saying like, I'm determined to know how I will feel when June dies. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think it's, Mortality is such a weird thing to grapple with. Mm -hmm. And when you find out that a person's life is potentially ending, like right before your eyes, it does bring up a lot. And it does sort of, I don't think it's, it's weird or, or bad that all of a sudden you, like you pull yourself to the front of that and think about how that, how that impacts you. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it doesn't make you it doesn't make Jane selfish that she immediately mm. thought about herself. No, I think it's human. Yeah. And so I really loved. I Chapter 11, that like beginning that like first page, page and a half of mm-hmm. grappling with mortality, I think is another really poignant um, space in the book that that like Mary H.K. Choi has clearly lived through some things i the the thing that was really poignant for me in relation to um this horrifying news that jane's sister her young sister who she hadn't spoken to who she was born into and from the same you know toxic and complicated family um as also as asian as an asian american family was extraordinarily relatable to me as a person who had my own estrangement from my father um, the last couple years. Um, We reconciled this year, and it's been really just the truest joy of my heart and my life. But the way that that Mary H.K. Choi writes how Jane feels in response to this news about June and the way that she writes how the love that Jane has for her sister is so huge that it hurts. Yeah. And boy, howdy could I relate to that? Like that dynamic, I think especially in Asian American families and in, in multi-generational families also like the more American each generation gets in my personal experience, the larger this divide becomes in understanding and the harder these typical behaviors of Asian parents, like millennials, Asian parents, I think especially behave um, and the, the lack of understanding between those things, making these communication divides happen so much more aggressively Um but that the love doesn't go away. Like the love still exists and there's no way to communicate it and it can hurt. It can hurt so much. And I 
really appreciated, you know, I wish I had some quotes to read and I don't, but June, I mean, the idea that she could lose her sister, yes, the self-reflection of her own mortality, absolutely. Also, how just devastating it felt to think that, like, she was going to lose this person. This person was going to be a loss for her. And that she knew that their dynamic, a big thing that we will talk about a little bit more and a big theme of this book is secrecy and also a lack of communication, right? Like these people don't, these people, all four of them, their parents as well, they all love each other so fucking much and they literally do not know how to tell each other at all. Yeah, and I mean, that's like, I think there's something like very... um relatable to that like I have when I think about like I have one sibling my brother he's younger than I am if anything were ever to happen to him I would like I would fall apart right and like there was a long time where we just like didn't necessarily know how to communicate the depth and width of our love for each other Mm -hmm. Um, and it took, you know, it took traumas and it took getting older and all of this, but like there is, there is that, like, I I really love the way that Mary H.K. Choi has balanced this sort of like reflection of self against the greater loss of a family member that you don't necessarily know how to like communicate immediately because it does, it does feel very, um, it feels very real. It feels Mm -hmm. very relatable. Um, and I feel like we could probably unpack that and talk about that a lot more, but we also should definitely talk about, Jane sliding into some DMs. Yes, we haven't even talked about Patrick yet. So, um, intro Patrick, who, oh my gosh, like, there's so many things I love about this character. There's so many things I love about the dynamic of Patrick and Jane. Um, so Patrick is a friend from Texas from church who Jane is still linked to on social media and they don't really communicate, right? Like, they just see each other. But she's like, he's perfect. Um, he's perfect. He's beautiful. And I'm trying to be perfect. I'm trying to be perfect. Something else that I love about the character of Patrick, maybe relatable to other Asian American women, um, like he is Korean. And Mary H.K. Choi talks about how she, you know, Jane has never been, I think never, right, been with a Korean yeah. dude. Yeah. It's pretty much just white dudes, which is also, again, embarrassingly relatable. I mean, I, that is like something that I have explored so much. And I am happily engaged to the love of my life who is like the whitest dude. Okay. Like, and I, I recognize that about myself. Um, and I have accepted it, but also like mid thirties is the first time I'm willing to look at it and be like, I think that's maybe like some internalized racism at work. Yeah. I mean, that is big. It's big. And, and I think, um, so, so 
it's really cool because this character that she brings um, into this lonely, sad, somewhat devastating scene, which is Jane's life, where she is basically just in this, this cyclical, evolving situation of hanging out with friends she doesn't like, getting really fucked up, um, having occasionally bad hookups with dudes, stealing food, binging it, and barfing. Right. That's like a pretty good summary of her life. She's in school. We don't hear about it very much, except that she's kind of always like barely making it to class, right. getting by like just barely working a job she doesn't like. Every single quote unquote friend that we encounter, she doesn't like. Like there's nobody where she feels really connected to and that she really enjoys until her and Patrick collide. And Patrick is sort of this like, beam of light but not in like a pedestal way in like a real tangible way where like you're reading these pages and you're getting to know him and you can't help but like him and want to hang out in his clean house while he makes you some food i definitely wanted to hang out in his clean house while he made me some food um but i think one of the things that happens um where we begin to see these like ties or like the bonds um between Jane and Patrick is where they can 100% relate to each other on being like children of Korean immigrant mm-hmm. parents right yes. and they they begin to have conversations around like you know who they've dated and like where they like trips and church and you know, what mom and dad do and all of this, like what, and, and one of the things about one of the chapters that I really loved, um, in their relationship was chapter 25, um, which just feels like the, a perfect Mm. chapter about vulnerability about just like peeling away, um, you know, like Jane's mm-hmm. identity, which has been centered around acceptance. Um, but she, and, and she, like with Patrick, she was accepted immediately, right? Yeah. She did not have to work toward that acceptance. He saw her from the start. Yeah. Um, and you know, so they, they hang out, they, she ends up, um, canceling her appointment with Gina Lombardi, um, my best friend. And, and kind of like her best friend too. So <laughs> oh. that's how you know she really likes Patrick. She is right. like willing. And she says that, I think. Like, right. This is a big fucking deal, dude. I'm not going to go see Gina Lombardi. Right. I am going to hang out with Patrick. Yes. And they end up going. She's like, she wears his sweatpants. And yes. they go to the diner. And they, she like eats food. It's such a beautiful scene. It is an incredible chapter that is like beautiful and it's really messy. Um, Well, so I think we're, we got so excited. We both loved this scene. We talked a lot about this. Like to me, it felt like almost this like perfect little pocket. That one scene where they're in his apartment, they wake up in the morning and they're together and they're just hanging out 
Um, and there is like a sexual tension, but it is not about sex. It is pointedly not about sex. It is very much about these two people being in community with one another. Um, and it's such a, like this lovely little pocket in an otherwise kind of like fraught and, um, uncomfortable situation, but we are like not talking about the lead up to it. We skipped that. And the lead up is really important. So they their meet cute is such an absolute clusterfuck like it is so messy jane is so drunk they meet up for the first time she find like i think she like slides into his dms and like has right. her come yeah. out and meet her and her whole goal goal is like i'm gonna fuck this guy tonight like that's what she wants to do she it is about sex for her in her brain she gets too drunk too fast and she tries to come on to him in the bathroom and he is essentially mostly not having it. And then she barfs. Right. And he and this thing happens, which narratively I think was just like such a cool tool and such a cool way to have the story move in this direction. But because she throws up in front of him, she says to herself like, oh, well, we're not going to have sex now. I have exposed myself like. There, this this thing of perfection that we're talking about that she's trying to constantly grab onto and portray, she fucked it up. So in her brain, right. she's like, oh. It's over. It's over. And I can be myself. I think that's what happens. And so this next day, the gift of that moment is that she gets to be herself with him. And she gets to feel um, like something that is real tangible affection. It's really cool. It is. A, it is really cool. And it comes at a time, I think, for Jane when she really needs it. Mm-hmm. Right. In the middle of um, this reunion with her sister that is so um, intense because of cancer. And then, you know, as as a result of this, June is like, I we should I'm going to go home. So they have this time, right? Jane and Patrick have this time. Right. And then June springs this trip on Jane, who at this point, Jane has been living with June because she's like, I can't with the apartment and Jeremy. And like, it's a weird lease agreement situation. Mm -hmm. Um, And June and Jane's mom sort of like guilt trips Jane into going on the trip. June pays for it. This naturally ends up sort of like pausing things with Patrick after having this like very beautiful time together where she like wears his sweatpants for a long time. A long time. Um, I have to say the like thought of this like in my mind, Jane is like a very like fragile, Mm -hmm. like small person Mm -hmm. that is, um, wearing like oversized sweats through New York city. And there is something about that that is like charming, but also feels like very warm. Yes. Because it's like, she has longed for a space to call her own. I think for a really long time. Yeah. And this feels like she has it. But then because of this trip home, which is going to prove to be 
bananas. Right. Um, it puts a pause on that whole thing. But she gets to take it with her. I mean, I think that's what the sweats are, right? Like, she totally, gets to totally, carry yeah. that with her in her heart. And, like, I mean, not to just go on and on about the scene, but that's part of what makes it special. If it was, like, a movie scene, I feel like it would have that filter on it where, like, everything's, like, really soft and fuzzy. And, like, it just is this, like, it is so starkly, contrastingly different than, like, all the other feelings that we're having in the book up until that point. Right. Yeah. So, anyways, maybe my favorite scene. I love it. It's so, so much. good. It's great. Um, so they go home to Texas. So they go home to Texas. So Jane and June go home to Texas. And um, I think we also glossed over the way that June, and I just want to touch back on this because I think it's important, but the way that June acquires. Um, health insurance, super important, is by stealing Jane's identity without her knowing. Yeah, and we do, we don't actually find out until sort of like later in the book how she actually does it. But, but you know, she, um, June, who was the highly successful sister, making all kinds of fucking money working in a very fancy job living in a very fancy apartment doing all the things um she no longer has a job gets diagnosed with with cancer she needs to have health insurance so she ends up stealing her sister's identity because a piece of mail Mm -hmm. um there's a piece of mail that she's able to use to to sort of to make this identity switch. Um, and she does this without Jane knowing. And that part isn't actually revealed to Jane until Later. after the Texas trip. Isn't it? What's that? That she switched her identity. No, it's before. It's before. It okay. is before. And I think that it is really, really important to circle back in terms of um, the secrecy because also, and Essentially, June has this sly way of letting Jane know that she's done this without directly telling her. So a big a big theme in this book, again, is just like these people's communication is very fucked up. Like they don't know how to talk to each other. They don't know how to tell people important things. Um, and so, you know, then June is super I'm sorry, Jane is super, super angry that her sister's done this, but she also realizes that it is, it is just as what it's what's happening. Right. And there's no sort like the fight is there's not even, there can't even really be a fight because the fight is her sister's life. Right. You know, which it's what's happening. It's, it is what's happening. There's no moment where June is like, I'm not going to let this happen. It doesn't even like cross her mind. Right. Yeah. Where Jane says that. And uh, so another part of this, like, as we're getting into the Texas trip, is that there is so much family secrecy that June has not told her family that she has cancer. So that's not why, like, going home is just the thing that she's doing because she's going home. Right. It's not because she's going home before she starts her cancer treatment. But in June's mind, that's what she's doing. 
Well, yes. You mean in, in June's mind, not Jane's mind. In June, right. June, in June's mind, also in Jane's mind. Like they're going home because June is going to start cancer treatment, but her par- right. neither of her parents no, are aware that, of this. That it's that. And so June keeps doing these things that Jane is like, this is so obviously strange behavior, like very sentimental things like giving her mom this or giving her dad that these really sentimental gestures. And Jane is like, how can't these people see? It's like painting her to know this secret and not be able to share with her parents. Um, but she doesn't, you know, she, she, um, is manages to respect that, um, that that is June's wish, but it is confusing for her. And I think this is where we begin to see something that is so common in, um, BIPOC, um, families, people, um, which is this, um, like parenting or like it's like parenting the parents or like like one of the siblings becomes like the strongest of the family and that is the person who like um ensures that like things sort of continue to move forward and and so we begin i think in the texas trip um we we see sort of where the family secrecy comes from as we watch uh, mom and dad interact with June and Jane. Um, We begin to see why that's sort of um, upheld over so many years. And then we begin to see Jane pick up sort of the, the torch of like someone has to be the person who has their shit together in this and and with the knowing i think like with jane also has this like deeper knowing that she doesn't have her shit together right that she has so much that she has yet to figure out but that if she doesn't if she doesn't take care of her sister no one else will because her sister is not going to break the patterns of family secrecy right so we start we begin to see this shift that um I think is real as, as I mentioned in, in many BIPOC uh, families, but I think is particularly real with BIPOC women. Oh yeah. And I think also in the dynamic of their sisterhood and their relationship, it's also this very healing thing that happens because um, historically because of the duality, there's a lot of duality themes in this book in general, but especially between Jane and June. So, um, Jane is very much, as we talked about, obsessed with self-image. She really wants to be accepted. It's really important for her to be liked. She puts that before almost everything, you know, and it's really her eating disorder is is born from this desire to be perfect, to look perfect, to be the perfect female image. Um, And June does not give a fuck about any of that. I mean, through high school, when we describe her as being this like, you know, this weirdo, like she is crass she is direct she is fully and wholly herself she loves things that embarrass jane right like when they are high school students together um and so and that's this really painful thing that happens in in their sisterhood and and actually like when they go back to texas 
Jane is having all of these memories of the ways in which she shunned her sister and chose social circles um, and like popularity sort of over protecting her when um, people were making fun of of June. Um, And so I think part of this also for Jane is redemption to be able to be this thing for her sister to be able to be present for her in this sickness um, is redemption to her guilt for having neglected her and left her. Yeah. Which like, I think we, I think there is a lot of um, like real, real life mirroring, right. In, in so many uh, family situations. Oh yeah. It's, it just feels so real. Absolutely. Um, so the family trip home happens. I feel like we're near. We got. We're like rapid, getting toward the end of our record. Um, the family trip home happens, and I guess we don't have to like unpack that anymore. Except no. that they hop on a plane. I mean, there's some stuff that happens with mom and right. Read. I mean, there's yeah. also the situation that we learn about with Jane in high school and oh, right. the white boy who essentially kept her a secret. And let me say something, OK, as a fat brown woman who has had a very um, I've you know, I've always struggled with body image stuff and um, I've always been on some spectrum of curvy or bigger. I don't know anyone who, I do not know any fat girls who weren't somebody's secret. I know very few Brown women in high school who were not somebody's secret. Like having that, I super related to that. And that was, you know, this really horrible situation that happened to her and, um, and that's unpacked. And she's able then to talk more directly with, um, June about that. Right. Yeah. So that's relevant too. Um, and, and likely relevant also to, you know, when we're talking about just like who, how, what made Jane into what she is today, like all of those aspects are really important, I think, for us to consider. Um, not to glaze over such an important topic, but they do return to New York City. They do. And because they've been gone, they need to go grocery shopping. Um, and so, and Jane, who has now picked up this, the, the torch of responsibility mm-hmm. is like June, you can chill at home. I'm going to run to the store. And June's like, Bleh, I'll go. And so they go to the Trader Joe's. Yes. And they end up <clears throat> as one does when you go to Trader Joe's with another person, be it partner, friend, sibling, whatever you end up disconnected at some point because one person wants the kettle corn and the other person wants the like vegan Buffalo dip. Right. Um, and all of a sudden Jane gets a text message and then hears her name, her American name followed by her Korean name being yelled in the store, being yelled in the store by her sister. And who should they happen upon? But one Patrick Patrick. And And what is Jane wearing? What is Jane wearing? Shannon? She's wearing the motherfucking sweats. She's wearing the fucking sweats, dude. And what, who is Patrick with? Oh, he's with. A woman. So 
this is actually a moment where I think it's an important part of the story because we see Jane sort of like crawl back into herself, right? After having experiencing that like vulnerability that led to like pot this like that led to possibility and hope and excitement and like this honeymoon experience that, you know, people who have entered into new relationships that not even relationships just have entered into a new sort of, uh, I don't know, exchange with another human. Like you feel that, right? Yeah. Um, and all of a sudden she's like, I am not good enough. Yeah. And who is this person? And she begins to, I, you know, go back to that space where she yeah. is judging herself and enormously huge. But the, but a really cool thing happens as she's crying in the store and their grocery cart is full. Yeah. She's like, I have to go. And, June, who is very direct and cold and and very judgmental of Jane, like constantly judging, always saying she's messing everything together. Exactly. You're just like a big fuck up. June is like, all right, fuck this. Let's get the fuck out of here. She they abandon the cart Mm. and they go. And so really, like you think that this scene is about Jane and Patrick. But it's kind of not. No, yeah, I think the scene has way more to do with with closing the circle mm-hmm. of growth, which is while Jane, you know, is has become a caregiver and a person that is really looking out for her ailing sister, June also realizes that she's not the only person in this relationship right. and that her sister is not a big a fuck up as she has always thought. And that her, her sister has feelings yeah. and is like really dealing with some shit because yes. what this leads to is them going back home and having a really honest and important conversation, an important conversation around yes. health. And, and I think that there's so many ways in which each scene relies on the next, right? Which is true in any book, of course, but that happening right after Texas was important for a couple reasons. The time while Jane is in Texas, she's thinking frequently of Patrick, right? Because they grew up in this town together as Korean American kids in this weird ass fucking Texas town. Um, but also because Jane showed June something in Texas. June was able to access this vulnerability within Jane by spending time there together as adult people for the first time in a really long time. And I think it softened her, right? It's It allowed her the access to see her sister, not even necessarily that she's not a fuck up because by these standards with which we judge people, she kind of is a fuck up, right? I mean, but I think... Sure. But I think... It didn't it didn't matter anymore to June, like because it doesn't actually fucking matter. Right. It was like these are why these things have happened. These are the reason that my sister is this way. She's not OK. And I need to be here for her. And it's beautiful. It was so fucking cool. That's a great scene. Yeah. So they have they have this um, excellent conversation. And then Jane is like done. Patrick, whatever. Like, I don't even need that guy. Who is Patrick? What are these sweats? Whose sweats are these? Where do these sweats sweats. come from? And so 
she decides to do the thing that we have all done in the wake of being hurt by the person that we are interested in is text the person that you should not be texting because they're a total fucking piece of shit. And so she reaches out to Jeremy and meets him and they have a thing. And that like, like the importance of this, I think is just like continuing to the way that I see it is this like, we see so much of Jane's growth, but we also see that Jane is still Jane. Yes, 100%. Right? And that she, there is no, like, Mary H.K. Choi is not like, this does not wrap up with a tidy no. little bow. Like, this is a person who is on the path to moving in a different direction than she has historically. But that doesn't mean that she is not still prone to making decisions that, like, will put, will probably hurt her later. I mean, change is not linear. So, and I think that's really what it is. I mean, that's what you're touching on. And yeah, that's right. and I think it's a, I think it's a really important part of the story yes. that she doesn't do the thing that is unrealistic and that just like upholds this ideal of perfection. Right. Like instead, it shows that people are people, and like relationship is messy and right. growth is you know paul abdul once said one step forward and two steps back and like damn Mm -hmm. she was right you Mm -hmm. know what i'm saying deep so i know um (laughs) so we're seeing you know we're seeing that but i but this also leads us to the space where and we don't have a lot of time to talk about this which is really unfortunate but where jane and patrick end up you know there's this whole thing where like just before that june is like i'm fixing to go like get cancer treatment and so I'm going to plan a party and I'm going to get laid and she gets like hella drunk, whatever Jane runs into Patrick at the bar. They reconcile Jane and Patrick come together in the flesh. Almost literally. And it's, it is actually like the storytelling around Jane and Patrick's sex scene is lovely. So good. It is. And I like have things bookmarked, but I don't even want to read them because I really want people to, I really want people to read them. Like it is so like Mary H.K. Choi does such an incredible job of sprinkling throughout this book, a really complex um, relationship with sex. Yes. And, she just beautifully describes how like wild and wonderful it is to be in sexual relationship Mm -hmm. with another person from like the, I just want to get fucked to like this person and I really fit together, really fit together. Nice. Nice. Um, Nice. (laughs) It's just so lovely. It's lovely. And it's especially lovely because, again, like it is just the growth. It's this growth. It's this believable growth that is not linear that we see from this character. Um, Shannon does have bookmarked like a beautiful quote um, from this book. And we should try to figure out eventually how to get it out to the people. But I will say this. 
This is um, from much earlier on in the book, something that Mary H.K. Choi writes about sex that was so validating for me to read. I have never been able to really put my finger on this as simply and directly and truly as she does here. Um, on page 182, it says, um, oh, no, I've lost it. Oh, here it is. I'm not great at drinking and I'm not great at sex. So far, I don't particularly excel at adult things. I've tried it, sex, and it's never how I'd want it to be. For all the talk of first base, second base, third, it's more like a light switch. You go from not having it, barely kissing really, to all of a sudden having it, full on sex. When it's over, I feel like I've failed to make it better for myself, that it's somehow my fault that I'm startled each time. There has never been a more true quote about having sex as a young woman, as a teenage woman, as a young woman. Like I honestly, I was just telling Shannon that I don't feel like I really understood what it meant to have sex for myself until my 30s. Well, I mean, but this is also a thing, you know, this conversation around women and sex it has been going on for for quite some time, potentially not in like such an honest way as we can have it now. But it's sort of been hinted at, right, that like we have not always been honest about our intentions or desires. Our intentions, our desires, yeah. our feelings, like all of that, right? Because so much like our sexual, our sexual relationship begins with the relationship that we have with ourselves. Sure. And the relationship that we have with ourselves is so fucked. As women. As women. Yes. Right. Absolutely. That, yes. that it can take a really, really, really long time to get to the point where you are comfortable as a sexual being. Yes. And it makes a lot of sense. I think that. You know, we we you talk about like people hitting women hitting their sexual prime in their like mid thirties through like mid forties because these are the times when we are the like smile. Do you see it? It's just I'm so excited. I can't wait. <laughs> Rose is like I'm there. Um, but like the, you know, like these the it it's fucked up that it takes that long, and it's yeah. fucked up that like there is such a um like a a weight of a of a culture that is that is completely dysfunctional yeah that really influences the way that we are able to be in physical relationship with our partners yeah. but um but damn if Mary H.K. Choi didn't just really nail it nice oh our work here is done <laughs> I also just want to say one thing too though all of that is so, so true. Like the way that you said that we can't be in those physical relationships and those physical spaces with others because we are taught to, to just hate ourselves. Right. And so yeah. accessing a thing that is based on not hating yourself is like feels impossible. Um, but the other thing I think is that we are also bred to be selfless and so when we as women think about what sex is for, we believe it's for men that I mean, at least I think our generation, I do think that the that 
largely that is changing for generations, like for Gen Z and like future generations. And I think that that's really incredible and amazing. And I think it has a lot to do also with like hetero, the normality of understanding like, you know, men being with women, et cetera. But I do think that there, we feel it is selfish to have sex for ourselves, right? That's like an idea that is born within us. And so we're always having sex for men. And yeah, and men are also guess who they're having sex for. They're also having sex for men. Yeah, I mean, I think like what what Mary H. K. Choi has done here is really show us that there is a reciprocity that is accessible in sexual partnership. Yes. Um. That. Yes. And and that it requires that that each person completely see the other right that like because patrick sees jane he's he sees her for where she came from right he sees her for what she has endured and he sees her for what she is grappling with in terms of her sister's illness and living with an eating disorder yeah like he sees her for for the complexity that she is and he can still move toward her in this like attraction and like willingness to like to be with that yeah right which is which is a lot and and she can do the same for him and i think like you know it's not to like i think there are times when sex can be sex like we can we can like fucking be fucked but also like as you're I think what has happened here is like as this relationship is being built out, it's being built on a foundation of vulnerability mm-hmm. that um, I think like begins with obviously like this concentrated time together, a deep understanding of each other. And then this sexual relationship that involves being able to strip away the facade. Right. Totally. Um, and then just like now that everyone's ready to just go rip the clothes off of their partners. Yeah. Um, then, you know, Jane has to go start her cancer treatment. That's right. Which is like June. I'm sorry. June as Jane, June as Jane, which is like a, it is like a, a wild sort of whiplashy moment where you're yeah. like, I just came out of this like very intense, like I want more Smut. of that. Yeah. Right. I want more of yeah, this like, I don't know for me, I, I definitely did. I did want more of that because I, as someone who lives like, who has lived with disordered eating to try to keep my body small, but currently lives in a, in a larger body and is in, a long-term monogamous relationship with my spouse. Like you read, I read this YA book and I'm like, there's so much here for me. Like there's like therapy involved, right? Like I just wanted more of that conversation around sex. Um, And then all of a sudden you're like in a hospital room. (laughs) Yeah. With uh, June and Jane and June as Jane. Right. Is going in for this treatment. But something like very special happens. Yes. And it's that Jane breaks this 
family secrecy, this habit and tradition of keeping everything bottled up and inside. And she calls their parents and invites them to the hospital and tells them what's going on with June. And the last scene is, uh, I mean, I'm trying not to cry right now. I mean, it is like this really beautiful display of vulnerability. And I think, um, you know, as a Filipino American, I think any Asian American that reads this book, it's going to resonate. (laughs) I mean, the desire to want that vulnerability while also, thinking about that vulnerability with your parents and it making you crawl in your skin. I can't describe again, the duality of that moment to read it. Like it was very, 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 very intense for me. Um, because that is absolutely a tradition of Asian American families, which is like vulnerability is very much a failure. You know, I mean, showing that kind of vulnerability is a failure, but this book breaks that curse. And we see these parents crying alongside their sick daughter and opening up. And and the fact that the person who made that choice to have that happen is Jane is like, I can't think of a better way for this book to end, actually. Yeah, it's it is a really beautiful ending. And I think it leaves us with, um something that I really love about Mary H.K. Choi's writing is the activation of our imaginations where she leaves us with just enough mm-hmm. to to mm-hmm. move into the spaces of wonder. And so the book ends and you're just like, I wonder how that ended. And you can see it ending in any number of different ways, but she's really like set out this landscape for us that is perfect for continuing to water the seeds of the story and totally um that's a nice way to say that that's right i really really loved the ending i love an ending that doesn't end in exactly the way that it should because nothing ever does. Right. Because it's real. Yeah. It just feels very real. It doesn't. I mean, don't get me wrong. I loved her. I love a wrapped up story. I, I, there is another part of me that does love like everything is perfect and everything is this way. And I don't have to worry about these characters anymore. I don't have to think about it anymore. Yeah. But it is not. It is not real. That is not what happens. And, um, you know, front to back overall, I mean, you know, there's so much going on in this book um, and there's so much more. Something that I love about Choi's stories is there's always so much more going on than the love story. The love story is never really the thing that's happening. Right. Yeah. And um, I live for romance. I love fictional romance. I love real life romance. I love my friends being in love. I love being in love. But I also so appreciate how much romance books have evolved from just centering around um, the love between a man and a woman and helping us see these characters, especially female characters, as whole dynamic entire people with other equally and or much more important relationships outside of the ones um, that are just about the men in their lives. 
Um, and she has done an excellent job about that with that. I think, um, it's so great and you should read it. Yeah, for sure. We loved it. We really did. Can you believe that we did it? I mean, kind of, you know, I want you guys to know that our goal was to record this in 50 minutes and it's been an hour and 20. So, but you know, that said, we're here and we are new at this. Yeah. Um, and we're really, I mean, I do, your time is so valuable to us. And so, um, we certainly want to aim for the hour long podcast in the future. And we, yes, we will continue to work toward that. And that said, um, you know, this work that we're doing is a labor of love because we do love, we do love reading. We love books. We love fiction. We've talked to you about that before. Um, but it is labor and we do yes. spend time thinking about how to present, um, a whole ass book to you yes. in this, in an amount of time that feels, you know, like it's not tearing into really important parts of your life. So, um, we are launching a Patreon, which um, you can find us at patreon.com slash brown girl book party. And we'll do a little bit more of a social media push on that. Um, but because you're listening to this, you get to hear it. So we'd love or you get to hear it first. Um, we really would love your support. One, it's just a sign that you're into what we're doing, but also it helps us keep doing what we're doing. Yes. Um, and, you know, we we do spend a lot of time thinking and planning and, um, and we have some fun, fun ideas for the Patreon too, that we're really excited to. Yeah. There's some, there's varying tiers. Yes. So, um, and we are, you know, just like Shannon said, we're going to keep working on that, that, um, our mark. But sometimes I do think that the conversation, the book warrants a little bit more time than that. And I think especially as our first, our first go like this book was meaningful to both of us. And, um, and I'm really glad that we got to share it with you guys. Um, that being said more on the Patreon soon. Mm-hmm. Um, I, as we are wrapping up here, I would like to give a special shout out to, um, my baby cousins, Danny Leonardo and Willow Leonardo it is the three of us um, on the intro song. We recorded that over Thanksgiving and you'll keep getting to hear it. And if it's if you're like us, it'll get stuck in your brain and you'll just be like brown girl book party. Yeah. All it's, the time. It's true. It does. It, <laughs> when I was editing the first show, I was just walking around the house singing it. Um, and so we'll start to sprinkle that probably a little bit more into um our social media footprint and if you want to hear a little bit more of that and see a little bit more of our faces um you should definitely follow us on instagram at brown girl book party yeah um yeah (laughs) um and then our next episode our first ever 2023 episode whoa dropping like it's mad hot on Saturday, January 7th, we've already picked our book for January 2023. But we're we, not going to tell you what it is. No, you have to listen on January 7th. We're very excited about this book. 
um, we think you'll be excited too. So you should definitely join us. Yeah. Um, and you know, as things move forward with the pod, um, we'll keep you updated on giveaways and yes, you know, hangouts if they happen. You should definitely go to that Patreon account because this is the part of sh- the show in the future where we will shout out our top tier patrons and we can't wait to do that for you. For you. And you and you and you. And on that note, we love you. We bid you adieu. Okay, bye-bye. See you real soon. Mm-hmm. <laughs>